Hello everyone and welcome to Golden Walk Magazine, the very first interview, very first interview that we have conducted, which I'm not exactly sure I can use that verb to describe what we did, but uh, it will become clear what I'm talking about in a second. But either way, um, this is our very first interview that we are bringing to you and uh, I'm David Walker, one of the editors. So let's let's get straight into it because it's a very long interview, but it's full of amazing, amazing insight. So this process was pretty interesting because we're trying out a new format. We are audio, but... Um, schedules and everything like that considering I, I wanted to try something a little bit different with the interview process and so what we basically did was we crafted interview questions um, some that were general some that were more specific to the actual people being interviewed and then they pretty much interviewed themselves so they asked themselves the questions and then they answered the questions and and so what that allowed was um, us to get this interview without having to worry about the technology of, of uh, are we in the same room, uh, is the connection going to be messed up, everything like that. So I like to think of it as like a mixtape sort of uh, interview, which is kind of going along with the theme that we have here. But anyway, let's let's get straight into it with the people that were interviewed. So this very first interview uh, is with Amorak Huey and W. Todd Kaneko. Uh, they are both poets, writers, um, just all around pretty great people. Uh, Amorak was actually published earlier on uh, in the magazine, so if you want to listen to that, I think it was uh, in February that his issue was released, so you can go back and listen to that. Um, but basically, they talked a lot about poetry, they talked a lot about the craft of writing poetry and writing in general, um, but mainly they also talked about their textbook um, called Poetry, A Writer's Guide and Anthology from Bloomsbury. And I'll just read you the description that's on the website and then we'll get straight into the interview because as I said, it's a pretty long one. Um, so. About poetry. Poetry, a writer's guide and anthology is a complete introduction to the art and craft of writing poetry. The authors map out more than 25 key elements of poetry, including image, lyric, point of view, metaphor, and movement, and use these elements as starting points for discussion questions and writing prompts. The book guides the reader through a range of poetic modes and offers examples of contemporary poetry covering all the modes and elements discussed by the book, including poems by Billy Collins, Sherman Alexie, uh, Natalie Diaz, etc., etc. Just a lot of great uh, people. So let's not do any uh, further ado with this and let's get straight into the amazing interview with Amorak Huey and W. Todd Kaneko. Uh, let's take it away. Hi, uh, this is Amorak Huey. Uh, I guess I'm here with Todd Kaneko and we're doing this interview for Golden Walkman Magazine podcast. Um, I teach poetry and creative writing at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. I'm the author of a couple of chapbooks of poetry, the collection Ha 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 Thump from Sundress Publications. And I have another book coming out from Sundress in 2019 called Boombox. And um, with Todd, I'm the co-author of this textbook, Poetry, A Writer's Guide and Anthology. I'm Todd Kaneko, and I'm the author of the Dead Rustler Elegies, which is a 
my book of poems about pro wrestling and uh, <laughs> and elegies. Uh, and I, you know, I'm co-author of that textbook, Poetry, A Writer's Guide, and Anthology, with the poet Amora Akili. Um, so here we are, doing this, this, this strange podcast thing. Right. So we have these interview questions that uh, Golden Walkman wants us to answer. The first one is, what is the first thing you remember inspiring you to write? Todd, I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> the first thing, um, the first thing that I remember inspiring me to write. So the funny thing about these questions is that we haven't seen them before, and so we're just kind of answering them on the fly. Um, I, the first thing I remember, honestly, I don't remember the first thing that inspired me to write. I would say it, would, it was probably a girl um, <laughs> because, you know, you're a kid and there's that person you desire. I mean, you know, whoever it is. I mean, I mean that has to be it, but I don't remember specifically. I think that, you know, recently, you know, um, I've, I, I just kind of react to the things that are in the world, the things that are in my life, you know. Uh, I guess that includes girls, my wife. Um, um, so that's kind of where I'm finding inspiration now. Um, you know, I was, I'm middle-aged now, so when I think about the, the first thing that inspired me to write, that was so long ago. Do you remember? What was the first thing that you remember inspiring you to write? Maybe that's still your answer. Yeah, I don't have, I can't, like you, I don't have like one particular moment or event. I think, I would say that it started with reading though. I read a lot as a kid. I was read to. Um, my parents both read to me and my brother. And so reading was a passion before writing ever was. And I remember the, the physical sensation you get when something you read something that just connects with you, like an ache in the back of the throat that, like, wow. And I think my desire, urge to write came from, like, could I do that? Could I create that feeling in somebody else? Could I write something that, that moves someone that way? It reminds me of, like, Emily Dickinson's top of my head blown off definition of poetry, where, like, there's a physical reaction to a piece of writing when you, when you read it. And, like, that from that physical sensation is why I read and but it's also I think what pushed me to write yeah I think that I mean maybe the first thing was like old Spider-Man comics you know because I read those comics I'm like oh I want to do that so I'm drawing and I'm writing um these bad stories with these poorly drawn muscled men um in bird costumes flying around trying to you know save the day maybe that's sure everything comes from maybe all my poems are really just Oh no! Really bad Spider-Man knockoffs. Right. Maybe everything I've ever written has been an attempt to like capture the adventurous spirit of like Treasure Island or Peter Pan, which were two books that I have distinct memories of my dad reading to me, and like the freedom and adventure and possibility that those books offered. Like, oh, I want to be in a ship with pirates and you know Long John Silver and or flying and fighting tigers and and so this idea of um, I don't know, like reading and writing, opening up new worlds and possibilities of adventure. I see that the next question, you've already sort of started answering it, is what about the most recent thing inspiring you to write? And yeah, I mean, like Todd, my answer for that is the life that I'm living, my kids, my wife, um, the politics of the world that we live in today, the things that I read, just the, the breathe in the world around me and like that it comes out in my writing. Yeah, my father passed in March, and that kind of, you know, I was writing, I was writing these poems, and they were, um, 
I have a Flash Gordon pro, uh, project. I'm writing these Flash Gordon poems, and you know, I have my pro wrestling poems, and I have a number of things I'm working on. And then my dad passed in March, and everything stopped. You know, uh, the whole world stopped for me, um, and the sort of the only way I could really, you know, s survive that experience. I think survive probably the wrong word, but that's the word I'm using. Um, is to write poems, and and that sort of became like my inspiration for you know, since March of last, uh, of this year, you know, so, uh, um, well, no, March of last year. So it's been almost a year and that's kind of, that's kind of where my head is. And, and, you know, my dad works his way into, into my poems. My son works his way into my poems. My wife is always there, you know, and, and we just live in this world and maybe that's what my poems are doing now. Just trying to navigate the private life and, and the public life, you know, the, the world and the home, how does that all that work for me? You know, maybe my poems on some level are, are still working that stuff out, you know? Right. I mean, I think one of the things that poems do or should do or attempt to do or can do is help us make sense of things that you can't really make sense of. Like it's grief and joy and loss and love. They're too complicated for language. And yet language is like the tool that we have at our disposal. Right. And so the, we write poems in an attempt to process these impossible sensations, these emotions. Yeah. You know, I've sort of like, you know, I've been thinking about greeting cards and Instagram and sort of the, what the, the, the way a poem closes down versus the way a poem opens up. Um, um, maybe that's sort of like, you know, you, I can't answer these questions. How does the world work? Well, I don't know. Right. Um, and my poem right. doesn't know either, but my poem might, help me figure out at least a way to to live without knowing um if that makes sense right and you have these these moments of clarity that you can't hold on to and the poem may be the attempt to hold on to that moment of clarity a little longer right and it it's it goes away and even in a poem it goes away but it's like it's something ineffable something vaporous and you're like trying to grab it for just a second yeah 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 um Question three is, hey, can you take us through your process of writing a poem from inception to completion? And on, uh, and on a more philosophical note, maybe we can take, tackle this part after like the, yeah. the, the, the first part. Um, do you think a poem is ever truly complete? Now, in, um, in our instructions, we said that we could kind of ridicule these questions about <laughs> how weird they are. Um, and I don't know, can, I, can you answer that question? I mean, the, what is the process? I mean, maybe, maybe we just talk about general process. Right. I mean, I would say it's, for me, it's, I don't have a process. It's different for every poem. Sometimes poems start with the title. Sometimes poems start with the first line, the last line, somewhere in the middle. I don't know. It's, it's the process, what's necessary, what's constant. When it works for me the, is that the process involves play. The process involves the freedom to sit down with some language and see what happens and not so much. Here's an idea. Here's a fully thought out idea that I need to like, now I need to transcribe it from my head to the page because when I try that, it never works. And so the process is different every time. Every poem finds its path differently. Um, but when they work, when they do find a path, it's because I've let myself not predetermine anything, just sort of like, all right, let's play around for a while see what happens. How does play become work then? I mean, because if you're all playing, we're just playing with words. When does the poem have to become a poem and not just you kind of doodling on a, mm. on a cocktail napkin? 
Right. I mean, there's some moment, right, that has to happen when things click into place. Like you realize, oh, I've been playing and I didn't know I was writing about my mom, my dad, my son, this this loss that I feel. But now I see it. These words have pushed me to that spot. And that's when you're like, okay, now, I, now you zero in and you do some work to make the poem communicate what you're trying to make it communicate. And communicate, I mean, pretty loosely there, not in the way that a memo communicates or a news article communicates necessarily, but through the experience of the language. How about okay. you? Yeah, I mean, how, what's your process? I feel like um, it's similar to yours, just the same. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it is similar. Um, I remember a long time ago, there was like this, um, there was this thing in Seattle called Concrete Foundations, and it was sort of like this grunge rock sort of conference and so um through this songwriting panel and on the panel were some of the guys from uh from pearl jam and um and they're like what do you want to know because all we do is we go we just sit in a room with our guitars and just play right, <laughs> right? and we just make we just make make noises and make fun you know make make fun stuff happen and hope that a song comes out of it and i feel like a lot of times when i sit down with a poem i don't have anything and so that's where the poem is most fun for me. I don't have anything. I'm going to have some fun with it. And then once I understand where the poem's going, I'm always trying to sort of subvert myself. How can I not do what I'm doing? Um, because I don't want to do what I'm doing. I want to sort of stay in that play, playful mode as long as I can so that I can come to some sort of ending and, and then go back and see, well, what did the poem just do? You know, right, right. It's that thing that Robert Frost says, no surprise in the writer, then there's no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And so you have to like play long enough to find that moment of surprise. And then, I mean, and then there is some, some work that you have to do. Some purposefulness at some point does have to enter the process, at least for me, I think like, I don't think poems are gifts that I receive from, you know, the muses or whatever like there's some actual rhetorical work that i have to do to like make the language do the work that i wanted to do and i think that and we talk about this some in the textbook right but like you the a poem is about it's meant to be given to someone else so the language has to have an effect on someone else and that comes from like my understanding of how a poem is going to affect someone else comes from having read a whole bunch of poems i've read an awful lot of poems that i think work and so thinking about how these poems that I've read, how they work, helps me push my poems in that direction as best I can. Have you ever gotten a poem as a gift from the universe? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're all gifts, but no. I think they've all been work. How about you? Yeah, but I had to work damn hard to get it. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. They're all, they all feel like gifts. They all feel like this moment of surprise. And sometimes you read stuff that you've written and, well, that's crap. But sometimes you read stuff and go, whoa, I wrote that? And that's when it feels kind of like a gift, but it was still work. Yeah. It didn't so, just happen. Sometimes it's like, sometimes it's your parents are like, hey, kids, we're going to the zoo. We're like, yay, we're going to the zoo. And they're like, oh, but you got to work for the gas money and work for your own admission. Right. You got to buy your own lunch. And your room needs to be clean first. Yeah. And you're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I just want to see the elephants. Right. You know? um, do you think a poem is ever truly complete? Yeah, I don't know what that means. So I think... From a writer's point of view, it goes back to like, I've read a lot of poems. I know what a poem looks like. Um, and from a writer, so from when I'm writing a poem, do I know if I'm done? I No, not really. You never really know. But at some point, you've written enough poems and you've read enough poems that you just kind of trust that you've done what you can do to this poem. Um, 
And as a reader, when I read a poem, I just assume they're all complete. By the time I'm reading them, if it's published, yeah. like this is how it's supposed to be. Someone someone finished this and said it's ready for the world to read. And yeah, if the reader think it's so thinks it's done, you know, that's a complete poem, isn't it? Right. But I, I feel like there's always you're always gonna look at that poem and be like, oh, you know, that's still kind of ugly right there. Oh, there's a blemish there. Right. You know? um, but the reader says, you know, the reader doesn't necessarily see that stuff. Right. Ideally. Yeah. Ideally, that's the hope, right? You know? And could you you could always change? I mean, Robert Lowell was famous for changing his poems after they'd been published and before they maybe they'd been in a journal and they one way they were in his book another way and then by the time they went to his collected edition they're in a third way. And I think Frank there's an anecdote where Frank Bedart was like. But I like the first version better. And Lowell's like, but they both exist. Isn't that enough? Yeah. So like, I don't know. Is a poem complete? Could you always continue messing with it? Sure. But at some point, for me as a writer, I have to stop and move on to the next thing. Like Howard Hawks is a, a film a, a filmmaker who famously made three movies, you know, three different times. Rio Bravo, he made three times. I don't remember the names of all of them, mm -hmm. uh, but it was the same movie three different times. You watch and like, wait a minute, that's the same. <laughs> this is the same movie, but he makes it, you know. There's something about that that thing where he just wants to do it over and over and over to get it right, or or maybe get a different sort of take on it. You know, maybe a poem is going to be uh, a really dramatic sort of um, sorrow for a poem, and then the next the next you know the next time you do it, it's it's a different poem. It's a different sort of accessing of those emotions of that material, um, and that's fun for me as a writer. Actually, just how can I write this poem again, but not write this poem? You right. Know? Yeah, maybe write it so that the reader doesn't realize it's the same poem. But or maybe they do. I don't know. So question four. A uh, few questions about voice in poetry. Would you define how would you define voice's role in poetry? Do you think that each of your poems has its own unique voice? Is there a centralized voice from which all of your poems are written? What was your experience finding your own voice? And what suggestions would you have for writers struggling to find their voice? I think for me, um, uh, I, I think that each poem has its own voice. Um, and I think that there's also a centralized voice. But it, it, this question is hard for me because of, you know, you know, if I'm doing something we're writing in, in, in a persona, uh, the voice changes, you know. Um, or often if I, I know what my voice has been doing for the last several poems and I'm like, okay, we got to change something up because my voice is starting to get monotonous, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I feel like, yeah, voice is, ideally I think voice is this thing that, that, that does, has to change from poem to poem. It's got to get changes with the subject, it changes with the speaker. Um, but also, you know, when I look at a poet's body of work, there's always something that I can sort of see, you know? Right. And I'm thinking like, Kim Adnizio's first book has this very distinct voice, right? Um, that's her first one, right? This, what is this thing called love? Sure. Um, and that has a very distinct sort of dark, um, you know, dark, kind of sexy, kind of really not sexy, kind of, kind of, sort of aggressive, sort of in your it's face. It's aggressive and playful. And there's this right. real, real thing that she's doing in, in that book with her voice. And when I look at her next book, it's not the same voice, but it's still her, right? I can still see that poet in those poems. Um, and I guess I'm not really, you know, I think it's a what a, a poet by poet, poem by poem sort of way to talk about that thing. You know, I don't know. If there's a right. blanket thing to say about voice because everyone everyone's using it differently. You know, right? I mean, the the last part of this question: What suggestions would you have 
for writers struggling to find their voice, I guess my general suggestion would be to not worry about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I don't, I'm not sure it's something that benefits from specific focus uh, because it feels impossible to like describe your own voice or to like work toward your own voice. Janet Burway says, just focus instead on saying what you mm. mean to say as clearly as you can say it and start there. Right. And the voice will follow that. And I think that that has been like, what is your experience finding your own voice? That's like, I just try and say something and like mm. the things that you can control are diction and syntax, right? You can control the, the level of the, the, the vocabulary you use and you can control how you frame your sentences. Um, but if you do that with too much focus on like, I've got to make this voice mine, like it feels like it's going to be forced. And if a voice works, it's because it's natural most of the time, or it could be artificial, but it could, it's artificial in a natural way. If that makes any sense. I think about vocal training, um, so like, you know, a lot of singers, when they're learning to sing, part of their training is, you know, going out and singing in funny voices. You know, what kind of funny voice? Can you like sing in a real nasally tone? Can you mm-hmm. sing with a lot of rasp? Can you sing like Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden? Can you sing like Beyonce? The goal isn't necessarily so you are singing like any one person, but to figure out what is the what's the range of possibilities of things you can do with your voice. Right. Um, and so I encourage students or young writers just to be like, or even I do this myself. I'm going to try on new voices just to see if I can do it and see how it feels. And if there's something in that voice that feels good, well, that becomes part of what I do. And if it doesn't, well, it just become this fun exercise, you know. But I, I, I think it's important to sort of step outside of the voice because, you know, the voice connects you too much. I think a voice often connects a writer maybe too much to the subject to the point that it could be a detriment to the poem, you know. Right. I think that a lot of times we're trying to separate ourselves from the poem so we can actually see the material. And voice is, I think, a way to do that, um, to really just sort of find a new way into that poem. Right. I think about what you talked about vocal training reminds me of thinking about painting and how you learn to paint by imitating the masters, right? You like literally just repaint the stuff that other people yeah. have done. Yeah. You, I mean, copy it as best you possibly can, not because that's your painting now, but because that's how you learn. Like you, you try to make your brush do what someone else's brush did, and then you learn what you're capable of and what you're not capable of, what your range is, right? Just like learning to play guitar by ear. Right, you absolutely. Know, you're you're going to learn something, you're going to hear it, try and figure out what you hear, and once you can associate what your fingers do on the fretboard with the sounds your instrument makes, you start to understand sort of how, how this whole thing works, how to, to play your own song or how to write your own song. Um, because you're associating sort of technique with what you're with what you're hearing, you know. Absolutely. Um, so, Amorak, how important how important do you how important do you find it that poetry be heard aloud? Are there any standout moments you've had with the oral experience of poetry? This can be a friend reading you a rough draft in their bedroom, a professional reading you gave to a packed house, or anything in between. We kind of talked about this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. you're right. I think it's important that poems i guess not every poem i don't want it's hard to make blanket statements right some poems are meant to be on the page some poems are meant to be off the page and and only oral or work best when delivered in person with a human face and human voice standing behind them right Um, but i i always read my own poems out loud multiple times during the drafting process um i like giving poetry readings i like attending poetry readings 
so I do think it's a, it's a vocal art in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think it's important that poetry be had, heard out loud, be that sound be for most poems, not all, but for most poems, sound is a part of the, what makes it a poem. For me, hearing a poem out loud and helps me understand what the poem is doing. Um, I can hear sort of the tension in the poem, um, the pacing of a poem, um, how, you know, the rate at which a poem unspools its information and the ways at which it speeds it up um, for the reader. Um, like, I have a poem in my book, um, The Nature Boy Buddy Rogers' History, which has this sort of, you know, has this weird vocal moment in it. In it. And I remember I wrote it because I wanted to have a poem that did that, right? It just goes, right. woo! And I, <laughs> I, I wanted to do it because I want to write a poem where I get to do that when I, when I read it out loud. It's one of the hardest poems that I have to, to, to read because, one, i got to make sure my voice doesn't crack all weird when I make that sound. <laughs> but once you make that sound, the poem has reached this sort, of, um, this sort of climax of sorts, and it's not at the end of the poem. So trying to figure out, well, how does the poem, where does the poem go from there sonically, um, and how does the poem go from there on the page, and how are those two things complimentary you know right yeah i mean that, um, that that noise is like the poem jumps off a cliff for a second but then like the poem's not over so you got you got to negotiate the landing yeah and keep yeah. walking right and so and you've got to you've got to guide the audience through that which is great i mean i think that I, one of the things you can do when you hear a poem is like you make sonic connections between words that may not be next to each other on the page may have nothing meaning there's no obvious meaning uh -huh. that they have to do with each other but there's a sonic connection and that forces us to experience the language differently it's it forces us to see connections between things that we didn't think had anything to do with each other but then when we hear them together we're like oh wait those and i i'm of course start don't have an example at, the, at my fingertips but i think that hearing words next to each other can change our relationship with those words i also like just people telling me stuff Sure. You know, I like I like when people tell me stuff, and sometimes a poem feels intimate, and I'm learning yeah. some stuff, and someone tells me stuff, and and it's moving. They, you know, tell tell me these things. Um, I, I dig that, and I think that's a good big part of poetry where you forget. You know, you're not reading. This is not the poetry that you put on up on a pedestal and 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 hold sacred. Is this? There's this. It's a living thing that 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 is meant. Uh, for an audience, and so I, don't, I dig that about poetry readings. Right. Lot. Yeah, we're all sitting around the campfire, you know, roasting our woolly mammoth, and like connecting as human beings through storytelling, through music, through sound, through language. Right. Woolly mammoth. <laughs> I'm thinking, why would be who was sitting around a campfire? What would they be roasting? So, marshmallows. <laughs> woolly mammoth. Not a, lot, not a lot of protein in marshmallows. Uh, well, it's gelatin. <laughs> That's true. Anyway. So here's some specific questions that we have. Um, one, both of you, wait, whose question is it to answer this question? I've lost track. I've lost track too. You, you started, so go ahead. Um, both of you were in higher education and teach at the same university. Uh, as a teacher myself, I'm immensely interested in what drives people into this beautifully strange and indescribably rewarding pro pro profession. Can you talk a little bit about how you both ended up at Grand Valley State University and teaching in general? How did you, can we focus that? I mean, how did you, why, why do you want to teach? What is it about teaching that you like? Sure. Because that's what it is, right? What yeah. drives, what drove you into this beautifully strange and indescribably rewarding profession? Right. I mean, I don't know that I was driven into this profession. 
I was a journalist for a long time, almost 15 years working for newspapers. Um, and then it felt like time to get out of newspapers. The business was sinking. The, the particular newspaper I, at, I was at was changing rapidly in ways that didn't feel professionally satisfying to me anymore. And I had just finished my MFA. And so I, and then I had taught literally one class. Well, like as a formal college class, I taught one class in my life and this opportunity opened up to be a visiting professor. I'm like, well, I guess, I don't know. And then now that I'm in it, it is like, there's so much reward to it. There's, it's about being around students who like care about learning, that they're, everything is new to them. And like, you can watch them sort of like figure out who they are, figure out what they're, what they want to do with their life or not. I mean, that they're young, they, they mm -hmm. don't all have it figured out, but like any part that you can play in that. And I don't mean to overstate the role that I have as a teacher. I'm just sort of there watching them go through this process and like doing the best I can to put the right things in front of them that, that would help them figure it out. Um, and that to me is what's rewarding about it. And that's why like, okay, now that I sort of, backed into this profession now that's why i'm here that's why I'm, i have no interest in doing something else what's your favorite thing about teaching it's moments when you're with a student and they they they, they have a breakthrough moment like they realize oh i can do this or i do have something to say my voice does matter or like wow this poem's not so bad and I, they, so many of my students come into the poetry class. It's oh, it's a it's a required class. It fit my schedule. I don't really think I'm a poet. I'm not a poet. Yeah, and then I by, know. Then they by all the, say that, right? Right, they do. And then by the end, they're like, some of them are like, whoa, maybe maybe I kind of am a poet. And like it, and it's not the specifics of them being saying they're a poet that means so much to me. But like watching them figure something out about themselves and the the confidence to say it out loud, like what a cool thing. And I love I love just getting to watch that happen. How do, about they, you? do they do they like no. do they get to the point where like they actually call themselves I'm a poet? Do you have, I mean have you had that discussion with I, them? I have had that. I mean I tell them in in my class that on the first day of my intermediate poetry class I say there are two things that are required to call yourself a poet. You read poetry and you write poetry. And so for the next 15 weeks everyone in here is a poet because that's yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. And they're like, oh, "Okay." And they still sort of say, "I'm not really a poet." But I have had some at the end go, "Okay, I think I am a poet." Mm -hmm. I didn't know that's it, awesome. but yeah. I think I am. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I spent most of my young life working a job and then trying to do my art. You know, I worked my job doing design and illustration. I was playing music at, at night, you know, or I'm doing this other job, bartending, and then I'm trying to do this other writing. And I really got frustrated with the, the sort of fragmentation between those two lives. Um, and I know, you know, you can't just be writing all the time. But I want to be writing all the time. <laughs> um, I, I really wanted some kind of life where I was able to fuse those two things together, my, my working life and my working life, and put them together in a way that wasn't going to make me burn out, right? So, like, mm -hmm. I think being a technical writer, I, 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 for me, I didn't understand how I was going to be a writer, write the things I want to write, be an artist, and then at the same time I have to get up at, you know, every morning and, and work eight hours a day just sort of, you know, putting words on the page. For me, I, I could, didn't think I could do that. And, and teaching seemed like the best way where I could sort of get my head into sort of into writing mm -hmm. in my job and then um, have some, some energy left over to actually, you know, have my head in my writing um, at the end of the day. 
Right. I mean, we were just I, there was just a conversation on Twitter that I saw that you were part of. Like, someone described it as trying to ride alongside an inconvenient career, uh-huh. and you're like, yeah, but they're yeah. Not, none of them are really that convenient for writing, right? We do the best we can. Yeah. One of the great things, and I feel really lucky, and I know that's not that way for every every at every department or every university, but one of the great things about our job and where we teach is that I feel surrounded by colleagues who value the same things that I value, yeah. who are talking about the same things that I want to talk about, so that go out, even outside of the classroom, within the department, within our meetings, within our up and down the hallway, the people around me nourish my creative life. They value it. Like They celebrate with me when things go well. They're there. If, if I'm having a rough time, I can talk to them and they understand what I'm talking about. And so that being surrounded by people who understand, which is when I was doing my MFA alongside being a newspaper journalist, I was not surrounded by people who knew anything about yeah. creative writing, who cared about – I mean they were, they were writers and editors of a different sort. So there was like some nourishment there, but definitely not in the same way that I have now. And I feel very fortunate to have that. Yeah, me too. You know, that's one of the perks of the job is everyone cares about their work. I think everyone cared about their work when I was in grad school too, but just the level to which people care. Um, I think it's just, it's different, you know, it's very different. It is. That's not to say that my, all my old friends from my old grad, from grad school didn't care. Uh, it's just sort of like, you know, you're young and, and you're in yeah. this space. You can only do so much. You can only care so much about, you know, about the world, uh, when you were in school because you're, you're focused on school, you know, um, you're focused on learning. And then once you get out, you know, suddenly you're left, to, you're still learning and you're trying to figure out how to learn it on your own. So I think we just value it differently, you know. Right, right. And we, you're like being in school is requires a kind of selfishness, right? You have to be like you're on your own path, and you have to sort of focus on your own interest and in making sure that you're getting out of the experience what you need to get out of it. But I think we're you're the the job that we have allows you to be more generous with your attention, with your you know, with your energy, with your like uh, just how you treat other people, and not again. Not that people in grad school aren't also exceed, exceedingly generous at times, but it's just different. Yeah. Um, this is the second question. How did you guys connect up your new textbook, Poetry, A Writer's Guide and Anthology? Did one of you have the initial idea or was it collaborative from the beginning? Um, how do you want to talk about this? Well, yeah, I mean, it, so it, it starts with that generosity, right? We were approached by a former colleague, who's yeah. Sean Prentice, who used to teach with us at Grand Valley. Um is one of the two series editors. He and Joe Wilkins are the series editors for the series of sort of new series of creative writing textbooks from Bloomsbury. Sean knows us and they wanted the poetry book. And so he came, approached us together mm-hmm. and said, would you guys be interested in putting together a proposal for this book? So the answer to, was it collaborative from the beginning is that, yeah, it was always something that we were offered the chance to do together. And yeah. it started with the generosity of a colleague. Yeah, I, I look at this too. Like going back to that Twitter thing I was looking at earlier today, sort of like the idea of you know what a career is and what a trajectory of a career is, and you know, um, not too long ago I was like lamenting to my wife, I was like, I want to have a second book, you know, and she's like, shut up, you have a second book. It's that collaborative one you just do with the more I'm like, oh, you're right, I have a second book. And she said, well, I want a third one. <laughs> right. Um, but <clears throat> the interesting thing about this sort of this book is like you know connecting up with you for this book and 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 making it happen is that it's sort of I didn't expect this to be my second book, you know? Um, if you think about, like, what a career is or, you know, what it is that you do um, you know, in that part of your writing life, I just, I didn't expect this to be um, 
you know, the next thing. Uh, I feel very fortunate and very lucky that, that it is. Um, it was a lot of work. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you just, you think you know what, what your career is going to look like as a writer. And then you're like, oh, it's not going to look like that at all. It's, it, it just happens in these different ways. Right. And, I mean, I guess to, to, one of the things to take it back to the, the advice for young writers is, like, to be open to the possibility that your second book isn't what you think it's going to be, right? Your second book might be something different. Like, my first book wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Right. No. And, <laughs> yeah. and nor was mine. Um, my first full-length collection was my third poetry manuscript. And now I'm like super glad that my first two weren't published. Mm. You know, they weren't ready and never will be. They're, they're like, mm -hmm. you know, they're not, they weren't what they needed to be. I mean, I guess I don't know when I thought a writer would write a textbook in their career, but it seems sort of like a, a capper, a capstone kind of thing. And I still feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah, me too. But, you know, we've both been teaching for a decade or more right and yeah which yeah. is so we've taught these classes we've taught these things we've taught said these things in class a lot of times so we were ready to write the textbook yeah even though we didn't i don't think either one of us knew that we were ready to write the textbook but it turns out that we were were there any um challenges or celebrations in the process of putting this this is the question mm -hmm. are there any particular moments of challenge and or celebration in the process of putting this book together that you'd like to share maybe a moment you think would be especially helpful for writers in the thick of tackling a large project to hear. I think we kind of talked a little bit about that, which is why I cut in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the challenge was signing the contracts and going, well, I guess we better start get to work. And yeah, because we did this fast, we, right? Yeah. It was a quick turnaround. Yeah. I mean, it was – I mean, it's embarrassing to say how quick it was, actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we signed the contract in the summer and – It was done all of a sudden. And, and then uh, – <laughs> Like 15 months later, yeah. the, the book is in our hands. Yeah. And I think that – I mean there's a question here too about the writing process, what it was like and day-to-day. -day, was it more of a divide and conquer or writer's room set up? I mean, oh, yeah. I skipped three, didn't I? Yeah, that's okay. Uh, they, they overlap. So we'll just sort of talk about them together, yeah. right? I guess the process – I mean our offices are literally across the hall from each other. So when yeah. we're on campus, we were able to, to touch base briefly – <laughs> yell back and forth yeah exactly and i'm sure annoy all our colleagues hey did you do that chapter yeah uh, yeah um but i think that um what helped us was conceiving of the book in a way that was small sections because we want we we thought of it that way because it made sense for to be the most flexible for teachers to use here are small sections that you can use in your classes and you can use them in any order that you want to mm -hmm. and so we wanted the book to be dynamic and flexible for teachers it turns out that made the writing a lot easier too yeah. because you could tackle the writing in chunks instead of like here's a 60 page section that you better work on which would seem endless and impossible like here's a three to five page essay on you know metaphor okay mm -hmm. that i can handle and then so we, we broke it down into these chunks we had used Google Drive and we had files in there and we would just sort of both know that the other one was jumping in working on those things. I think the cool thing about this book was that um, – and, and this is what it's been like working with you just as a collaborator is that you know we put ego aside sort of like I'm going to write this thing and if you're going to change it, just – just make it better. That's all I ask, you know? Right. Please make it better because I made this as good as I can make it. So just do whatever. No, you don't have to ask me for permission to do anything to the thing that I wrote. Just just do it. And and by putting ego aside, I think that we can say, you know, that in a lot of ways, this book is probably more collaborative than anything else that I've ever done, you know? Um, 
outside of maybe playing music, but you know, here it's sort of like here we are um, with these sections, and I think that where the book is the strongest, where the book is the strongest, those are the sections that I look at and say I don't remember, right? What's what? Yeah, I think there are very few spots in the book that even I, who was there for the whole thing, mm-hmm. even that even I can point to and go, oh, that's a Todd section. You know, there's a, I mean, and, and when I say section, I mean, even just like a paragraph, a couple of mm-hmm. sentences or that's a, that's me, right? Mostly it's us, which yeah. is like you said, it's, it's really definitely the most collaborative thing that it's I've ever really done. It's a weird thing where like, I know there's terminologies that you use that I've never used before. And then there's vice versa, right? right. So we have these sort of like two ways of looking at poetry coming together. But then in the collaboration, I think that we've kind of made them this one way of looking at uh, poems and I think that's part of the book's strength I think I agree I hope so right I mean that's the idea and the, it, like you said it goes back to like at the very beginning we said no ego here right the yeah. goal is the book and th- that's for me that's something that I definitely learned from the newspaper business when I was a copy editor and or and working with other people's other reporters stories and like my name wasn't going to be on it anywhere and the but the goal is the story. The goal, the 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 end product was what mattered, not the reporter's name or my name. We both had the same interest, which is to tell the story as clearly and as succinctly and as you know importantly as possible. And so that idea of like, all right, let's put the readers first and set our set our you know our name aside, which is obviously very different than writing individual poems, right? Where like it's my art and I'm creating my art and it's me. And so like how you know. Someone, you get a, an editorial suggestion from a from a journal, and they're like, "This last line, like, stop. That's my art. I, my yeah. soul is in that line." But mm-hmm. like, we were able to put that aside. But even in the poems that we've collaborated on, I think we did the same thing. Sure. Know? And I, I think it's just sort of looking at the work, looking right. at the art, and how do you, you know, I, how do you, how do we work together as collaborators? And I think that you know, if there's advice to be had about tackling a tackling a large project, the partner is just sort of like, stop thinking about yourself. Think about what's on the page. Right. And sometimes. Sometimes you're not the most important person, you know? Right. Absolutely. So, and think about think about what your end goal is. And if your end goal is to produce a good textbook, then, you know, making sure that, you know, page 67 is your paragraph and not your collaborators, then that's not really the right goal. Yeah. No, you know? totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my goal is, I feel like one of my goals for the book is to sort of become not visible. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a textbook too, right? A textbook, it's not... A, a, a lyric essay it's not a poem it shouldn't be about like here's the personality of the of the yeah. person of the other side and it also needed to be we needed to be invisible enough that a teacher could use this textbook right yeah. you know it's it's the purpose of a textbook in a classroom is not let's look at Todd and Amorak no it's like let's look at poems and let's use let the book be a lens that we look through but the lens has to be invisible yeah it's just like uh, one of the questions uh there's a note. Of course, wrestling plays a larger role than you'll find in other poetry textbooks, thanks to Todd. But yeah. Right. Um, but I mean, so what do you think separates this textbook from others in the genre? You know, how would you sum up your unique stamp on uh, on the genre of the poetry writing textbook? Yeah, I mean, I always feel a little weird answering this question because I feel like it's asking us to tell to say what's wrong with the genre or how we fixed something. And I don't... Yeah, I don't want to dog on anyone else's textbooks because so many people have used those textbooks for decades and they've been working and people have learned to write poems from them. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with them. Right, written by smart, thoughtful poets with lots of interesting things to say. I guess what we tried to do 
was write the book that we wanted to teach from that approached poetry the way we write it in the 21st century and that did something that other textbooks didn't do. I feel like a large majority of textbooks, not all of them, but most of them focus on form, on prosody, and on interpretation, mm -hmm. and not on sort of like how the pragmatic approach to constructing a poem. And not to downplay the art side of it, because we thought I think we we give, give the art side its due in the textbook too. But our primary focus is on like what are the practical things that beginning poets need to know to understand how to use language with intentionality. Yeah, I'm, I've always thought of myself as a teacher as sort of a nuts and bolts guy, right? Here's here's some parts, here's some connectors, um, and here's some tools, and what can we make out of this stuff, you know? And I think this book does that. It gives us, it gives, it breaks poems down into some general parts um, for the reader to sort of use to assemble their own stuff, you know? Um, here's some nuts, here's some bolts, here's some elements right. of poetry, right? Yeah. And that's the, I think that's the biggest thing is that we, we have this book that is sort of divided up into these elements um, that the reader can use to think about poetry. And I think you could actually use this in, an, in a lit course and uh, use it to break down poems. Uh, but that's not its focus. Its focus is how do we build poems, not how do we extract meaning from poems. Right. And I think that those things are not mutually exclusive, but I think that, that there's you know definitely more of a focus on, on that sort of how to how to make something and what are we doing when we're making something and how do we sort of, you know, how do we survive the making of the thing as right. writers? Uh, I think that, and we do that in the way that sort of, at least I kind of conceive of it, you know? Right. And I think that the other thing that we really wanted was like a hyper contemporary anthology. Yeah. The, this is the conversation that young poets are like, they're literally joining. The, like if you think of, Writing, communication, poetry as a conversation that's been going on since since we've been having conversations as a species, right? This is the conversation they're joining now. So, like, the, there's plenty of sources for to read classical poems, to read the the traditional canon. We wanted something that was not that. It, so these poems, like Susan Blackwell Ramsey said, that the ink was barely dry in some of these poems. Yeah, yeah. And so they're they're hyper contemporary poems. It's a diverse, dynamic anthology full of like. These are poets who, like, you can go read their work, and they're being celebrated right now, and they're writing poems about what's going on in the world today. And so that was really important to us as, as we put together this the anthology portion of the textbook. I think representation was really, really important, too, you know, in the, in the anthology portion. We wanted, um, at least I wanted students to be able to look at, you know, any student to be able to look at the anthology and find a poet in there that they can say, oh, this person's kind of like me. Right. Um, and so maybe there's room for me in poetry where maybe I didn't before, you know, I'm a, a lot of, you know, a lot of times you, you can look at anthologies and be like, well, there's not room for me there because I don't see room for my voice or my, you know. And so we, I think that, we, you know, I hope that a, a young writer can look at this anthology and sort of understand where they not only where they fit in, you know, within the larger conversation of poetry, but sort of see their own voice. Uh, and how their voice would contribute or, or, or how it counts, you know, because that's the thing. So I think so many young writers, they, they, they want to write, but they just look at what's what's being published or what they conceive of as being published. And they kind of say, well, maybe I don't count. Um, and I, I want that anthology to, to make sure that, you know, they know that, you know, you count, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the 
that's one of the things that we want the the whole, the whole project to do is yeah. to like give people confidence right you can do this right and like that's one of the most important things that you do in a, in an intermediate or introductory level class your job there there's so many poets or writing professors who think that their job is to identify talent and maybe weed out non-talent mm -hmm. and like to me that's not there may be a place for that in the world but that's not that has nothing to do with teaching mm -hmm. a teacher's job is not to identify talent nurture talent and tell everybody else that they're not the chosen ones the, the teacher's job is to raise everyone up from where they are to where they can be mm -hmm. and that's what we're hoping to do with the book. I'd be so mad if I got in my math class and my teacher was like, nope, you can't do algebra. Uh, but look at these people. They're great, you know. Um, uh, not that poetry is algebra, but, you know, if, if it's something that we can teach, and I think it is, then we have a responsibility to, to those students. And I, I hope the book fosters that, you know. And I think that a lot of books foster that. Uh, right. But, you know, it, as a, someone who's like, was involved in writing a textbook, something I'm hyper aware of, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you learn anything uh, from this book? I mean, it, it forced me to articulate a lot of things that I sort of maybe thought but hadn't said. And things that I say in classroom that you sort of stumble through in, oh, in the yeah. classroom. You say it, and then you refine it, and then you say it again. And then you come back the next period and say, you know, last time we were talking about this, well, I really think that. But in the textbook, you sort of get one shot at that. <laughs> one shot, yeah, yeah. And so like, it made me think. Really, Here's the appendix. What I really mean by chapter yeah, five. Exactly. I, it made me think really carefully about, like, when I'm talking about line break, what am I? What are the things that I want to communicate about line break to my students? Mm -hmm. And how do I do that with clarity when I'm not there to say what I really mean is? Yeah. And so the, the book forced me to sort of, almost everything in the book forced me to take a hard look at what I believe about poetry and what I believe about explaining poetry to students and... Be really careful about how deliberate about how I articulate that. No, me too. Sort of like I, there's things in that book that you know before I would probably skim over real right. fast because like I want to focus on this other stuff that I think is more interesting. Uh, but then teaching isn't necessarily just you know about what I think is interesting. So it, it really gives me sort of this thing that I can like look at and say, well, you know, maybe I maybe I skimmed over you know this thing about value. Mm -hmm. Because I, I use that term all the time. What, what's the value of X? What's the value of Y? What's the value of the anvil falling? You know, right. whatever. So it really made me sort of articulate this thing in a way that, that puts it in a black and white for students. And really, it, it forces me to articulate it. And in doing so, I'm just, I think I'm a better writer because I, I'm thinking about that technique. What is what, what actually is happening in these poems? And I'm a better reader and writer of poems. Yeah, I would, for sure. And I think that there are moments where you talked about, uh, we use different terminology, where your terminology like has now entered, has now become mine. No, totally, yours too. Because of the book, right? I think your, your, whole, your section about how poems move is now part of how I think about how poems move. And so I've definitely, it, definitely learned stuff from this process. It's funny because, you know, I'm teaching out of this book now, so it's cool because I'm, I'm teaching about metaphors, you know, in class, and then we're talking about metaphors, and then I think we're done but then your voice is in that book too, right? So the things that you teach, so I'm like, I got this voice in my ear saying, no, you forgot to tell them about that. I'm like, right. oh, wait, everybody, look at this. And then they're like, oh, that's really cool. And uh, it, it opens our discussions up in ways that are really, I think, productive. Right. Uh, that I, you know, so I think it's, I've learned a ton, actually, from writing this book and, and from teaching out of it even. You know? Yeah, they're good. I mean, we hope that, we hope everyone does. I'm looking, I teach out of it next year and I'm really excited to do that. So you have a poem that you'd like to read? Uh, sure. 
I, I will read this poem, which has a long title. I have a fondness for long titles. Has it been published somewhere? It was on a blog called Then and If, which I think is no longer on the internet. So I don't think the poem, it has been published, but I don't think it's currently available. Um, I believe that it is in my forthcoming sundress book, which is called Boombox. The poem is called, The Elegy Arrives Too Late to Change Anything, which is sort of the definition of elegy. Elegy for a boy who no longer exists. Elegy for the girl he loves or loved once, one late spring or early summer, a season spent in the back seat of her mother's Taurus, a cassette of Cinderella's new album draining the battery and curfew fast approaching. Elegy for the sweetness and how they reach for each other, for the guitar solos collecting in their eyelashes. This is the year the river floods. The river floods every year until the shape of the river is the shape of a flood. He asks her to turn on the dome light because he wants to see her. She says, let's take a walk instead. They should already be on their way home, but they are so young and the air is so warm, the water so dark and their footing so uncertain. For a while you think someone is going to drown, but it's not that kind of elegy. Where did that poem come from? Um, I'm off, I know I'm off script. <laughs> that's okay. I, I think this, this was a poem that I wrote one April when I was doing a poem every single day. And I was think I was writing a lot about nostalgia and high school and heavy metal music and the relationships that I had or imagined having in high school and how their shape how my, my memories of those relationships and my imagination of those relationships, both my like the imagine the imagined relationship that I had at the time, but like looking back on it, how much of that is shaped by memory or imagination and the sort of the conflict between memory and imagination and then the loss that comes with looking back at something and it's not there anymore and maybe it never was there the way you think it was and so that's that's where the poem came from cool cool um this is um a poem that was originally published in the superstition review um which is out of arizona state in uh in tempe arizona um, <clears throat> this is Elegy for Absent Fathers. Your father is a song you sing at night when your son refuses to sleep. Your father is a silence in which you hear your own voice saying nothing. Your father is an island. Listen to the waves lapping at the shore, the echoes of seagulls off his coast crying his name. You see them from the beach, a dirty cloud of feather and beak, and then they're invisible once more. Your father is a herd of deer wandering roadside, an orchestra of crickets at dusk, a swarm of meteors crossing the sky overhead. Ask yourself why your father can't just be your father. Ask yourself where he's going before he's gone. It's a beautiful poem. Thanks. I, I find myself wanting to do the mmm sound <laughs> here at poetry readings because it's a it land, that one lands it, it hits. Thanks. Well, thanks for a great conversation, Todd. I hope this meets what Golden Walkman wanted from us. Thank you, Morak, for the great conversation. I hope that Golden Walkman is is uh, is happy with it. I'm hoping that our audio recording is taken. Yes. I haven't checked it. It, it would be a shame <laughs> to have to do this all over again. Yeah, but you know, I do it all over in a heartbeat. Yep. Thank you, man. Thanks, Todd.
So I just wanted to poke my head in at the end here and say that I really hope you enjoyed this interview. I really want to thank Amorak and Todd for taking the time to sit down and have that conversation to put everything together for us. Uh, I really, really, really can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking the time. and uh, It was truly amazing. The insight in there was fantastic. The conversation was great. The rapport between you two was, was great as well. So thank you so much. Um, and listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen to this. Um, this was a long episode, so I'm just going to end it here and say uh, this month is not over. We have another issue coming out in 10 days, and it's all poetry. So happy Poetry Month. 